Okay. Thank you. Switched over. We are coming today to the last sermon in Hebrews. Um, I won't say how long it's taken us to get through Hebrews, but if I say that since I um, took over from Rob and became senior pastor, we've really only done about four books <laughs> in, in, in any detail. Romans, John's Gospel and the Letters, um, um, and Hebrews. So... Um, Today I'm going to do a, a, quite a chunk, it's from verse 9 to the end of the chapter, but I don't have a, a long thing to say about every one of those verses. Bear in mind that we start off with picking up from last week, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever, which is prefaced by the previous verse, remember those who rule over you, the New King James Version has that accurately, those who rule over you, who've spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct, Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then it goes on, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. The New Testament repeatedly warns us to be alert to false teaching. And I'm going to say again today that not all that is on religious TV channels is good. And not all popular preachers and ministries are sound. And if you're not aware of what is false teaching and what is broadcast, then I'm very concerned over your lack of discernment. If you don't know what to switch off, switch it all off, please, for your own safety. Don't be taken in by fame and apparent success either. Success is not connected to soundness of doctrine or to good character. You can ple preach man-pleasing sermons and draw a crowd. Yeah? False teaching came early into the early church. The letters of Paul and Peter and Jude and John all address issues raised by false teachers. And Jesus himself warned us that false teachers and false prophets would come. He used the expression, wolves in sheep's clothing. The first wave of attack was from the Judaizers and legalists. As the gospel went out into the Gentile world, some men from Judea, some of the, the people converted maybe from the Pharisee class, were very busy trying to get all these new believers to get signed up to be Jews. To be circumcised and to keep the laws of Moses and, and all of the Old Testament rituals. And Galatians may actually be the earliest New Testament letter written and in it Paul hammers down those who try to put Christian believers under the Old Testament law submitting themselves to circumcision, food laws and observing holy days. He hammers it. If I read it out loud to you, you'd be shocked. But we haven't got time this morning. In Acts 15, we read that there was a council at Jerusalem to determine this issue. Should the Gentiles be, 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 be encouraged or even pushed into adopting Judaism or some measure of Judaism so as to be, quotes, real Christians? And the answer was, no! Absolutely not. And there was a letter written from Jerusalem to the churches to say, we only ask you to do these things. 
You are not to come under the old covenant. Paul may have written the letter to the the Galatians as a follow-up to that letter from Jerusalem. But the Judaizers, this, this group of men who went around trying to get all Christians to conform back into Judaism, did not give up. They followed Paul wherever he went. Wherever he went, they followed in after him and tried to, tried to reverse some of the things that he'd been teaching and saying. Trying to bring Christians under bondage to the old covenant. Now let me tell you, that has not gone away. There is a tendency still today to try to Judaize Christianity. It's more subtle than issues of circumcision and kosher food. It whispers something like this. If you're a real Christian, you'd be, you would really want to be in Jerusalem and you'd want to help rebuild the temple and you might consider circumcision. And what's the bad th- idea about prayer shawls after all? Weren't they, weren't they good for those days? Don't they display some? Ever heard, ever heard any of that going on? Ever heard any of that going on? We're going to have the best meeting ever because it's going to be in Jerusalem. Yes. Yes. Got you now? Yes. Yes. It's a Judaizing tendency and the scriptures, particularly Paul's letters to, the, to Galatians and to Philippians, hammer it down. No, no, no. You're not to go back under the bondage of old covenant law and old covenant ritual. So I urge you to read Galatians and maybe Philippians 2 out to yourself. That was the first wave. The second wave that plagued the church was a, was a pulling back into Greek philosophy, which of course predates the coming of Jesus by a couple of hundred years, most of the Greek philosophers. The Greek philosophers like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle are revered to this day by the, the, the educational classes and the political classes. But such philosophy is contrary to God's word. It's the parent to humanism, atheism, even evolutionism. The New Testament writers contended with that influence of Greek philosophy in their time. Let me point you to a few more scriptures now. You can go to Colossians, particularly chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes to Corinthians who live in Greece and says, When I came to you, I determined not to philosophize. I'm not going to debate with these philosophers. I'm going to preach Christ Jesus to you. And him crucified. There's a background to that I haven't got time to go into, but I, I, I think I see in Acts why he learned that lesson. We're not doing this. We're not engaging with philosophy. We're preaching the truth of Jesus. One major problem of Greek philosophy was this. It separated natural from spiritual, mind from body. Oh, that's only physical. The real thing is the mind. Or the real thing is the spirit. All right? That is part of Greek philosophy. That infects the church to this day. It leads to even to this extreme position. It doesn't matter what I do with my body because my spirit is pure. I'm glad you laugh. That's not just nonsense. That's dangerous, wicked nonsense. Let me give you the truth. God will judge us for what we have done in and with our body. That's scripture. A matter matters. What is physical matters. God does things supernaturally through physical means. Yes? We believe in the healing of bodies, don't we? Through the power of the name of Jesus. 
Does God do something physical, which is at the same time spiritual? Yes. There's no division to him. A human being is a physical being having a mind and a spirit which is alive to God. That is real humanity. Jesus now is a true human being. He has a body. He's raised from the dead. I've heard a number of Christian leaders of the years say something like this, okay? You may have heard this. We're not physical beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a temporary or passing physical experience. My friend, that is Greek heresy. That is not Bible. You've been duped into thinking the way that the Greek philosophers teach. It's contrary to Scripture. They're repeating their ancient heresy, even if they don't know they are. If that were true, there was no point in Jesus rising from the dead and there's no point in him raising us from the dead because we don't need bodies. We just need to be spirits. You might be disappointed in this, but your eternal destiny, if you're a Christian, is to be a physical, glorified human being, not some spirit floating around in interstellar space. That is not your destiny. Sorry if you're disappointed, but it's time you caught up with the Bible. Greek philosophy continues to deeply infect the Church of Christ to this day. In fact, it's so current that people don't even see, well, what's wrong with that? We all think like that. Well, we shouldn't think like that. We should think biblically. Then there have always been those who think that God's grace and the forgiveness of sins are an excuse to live without boundaries, without restrictions. It's called libertinism or licentiousness. Another word is, if you deliberately go about defying God's law, moral law, the thou shalt not and so on, the moral law, which hasn't changed, Sexual morality issues which have changed. Those are all repeated and reaffirmed in the New Testament. I said that the other week. God's views on sexual morality have not changed. So to ignore God's law, moral law, is called antinomianism, to live without law. Nomus being law. But that attitude is still there to this day. I'm not under law, I can do as I like. No, you're not under law of ritual and sacrifice and circumcision and holy days, but we still are bound to God's moral law. What is sin is still sin. The New Testament letters deal with that abuse of grace and corruption of truth too. We learned in going through 1 John that all false teaching has this underlying drive to turn us away from Jesus himself to something else. So John coined a new word. We think it's a new word. It appears in his letters and it doesn't appear before then. Antichrist. Heard the word antichrist? Yes. Greek, it's antichristos. And he coined the word, made it what replaces Jesus. My friend, antichrist is not some political leader to come. It's false teaching that's been here for 2,000 years. Now, there's a beast and a man of sin that the Bible talks about. That's something else. But we, people confuse those two. Antichrist is John's word. And when John uses the word, he's referring not to some politician or dictator yet to come. He's referring to false teaching. And if you, want, if you think, wow, that's weird, Dave. Where would you get that from? I'll give you my notes on when we preach through 1 John. Yeah. You can read those through yourself and pick up on that. It's not some person to come. It's false teaching, which Jesus said would come, and John says, and it's here, and we're dealing with it. And he uses it, let me quote a bit to you. In terms of talking about Antichrist, he says, they, false teachers, went out from us because they were not of us. Yeah? They had to go because they weren't standing in the truth. They weren't bringing the truth to us. 
At the center of every false doctrine is something false and misleading about Jesus himself. Now, we can play comparative religion with people, and we try, we try to do that to be nice and kind sometimes. But don't be impressed by what cults and other false teachers appear to have right, because you'll find again and again that what really matters, what is most fundamental about Jesus himself, they have got wrong. It, that's what really matters, folks. The doctrine of Jesus himself. Who is he? What has he done? False teaching isn't as random as it may seem. There's an evil intelligence behind these attacks upon the truth and replacement of Christ Jesus by another gospel. In fact, there are a variety of alternatives on offer. And as I thought about this, I thought about a market. All sorts of market stores with different things to different tastes. Here are just a few. Over here, you can become more Jewish. Let's get back to the old covenant ways after all. You know, let's, let's, let's go out here's uh, earlocks down here and wear the prayer shawls and let's, let's, get, let's get back to some other things. You, know, you, can, you can come to that all over here. But if you like Greek rationality and scientific thinking, over here, let's all be Greeks again. Or maybe you like Eastern mystical meditative kind of religion stuff. Well, let's have a kind of Christianity that gets into that. As long as it takes you away from Jesus, he doesn't care. As long as you'll swallow something, and get down a wrong track, he doesn't care what you, which one you prefer. Over here, if you want your greed and love of money to be affirmed and celebrated, there's a store for you too. You don't, you don't, need, to, you don't need to worry about money, you know. It's, it's okay to be easy with money and love money and, you know, there's a store for that. There are more. And the enemy doesn't mind which one you get into. I've seen people get carried away, swept off course by all sorts of outlandish teachings. In fact, sometimes someone's been saying something to me and I've wanted to laugh out loud. I'm thinking, what? You cannot be serious, as the old expression goes. But then I've realised they are serious and the fact they believe it is deadly serious. So I keep my face straight and I try to think, my Lord Jesus, what do I say to him? I mean, it's clearly nonsense. But it's also dangerous. The doctrine and experience of the grace of God should strengthen our hearts. You notice that expression, strengthen your hearts? That's a Greek expression that means like when you've, when you've had a good meal. <sighs> Sorry about that microphone and recording. You know, there's a thing about, you know, you're supposed to kind of patch your tummy when you've had a good meal. I don't know if people do that nowadays, but some cultures it's still an expression. You actually show you've had a good meal by showing your appreciation. Strengthened your heart. Our hearts are strengthened not by what we eat or don't eat. Not food laws. Not religious meals either. You remember the people brought their sacrifice in the Old Covenant and apart from the sin offering, every other offering they brought, some of that was given back to them to go away and eat and some of it was taken by the priest to go and eat and part of it was offered, the rest was consumed. You're not made holy by eating particular meat given in a particular way. You're not made unholy by eating something that is uh, halal, for instance. Do you understand? We're not benefited by what we eat or don't eat. 
Our hearts need to be made strong through grace. God's grace and the truth of the gospel strengthens us in faith for life against error. True doctrine is always Christ-centered and grace-centered. It is not man-centered. It is not wealth-centered. It is not success-centered. There's a reminder here, we're not under the food laws of the Old Testament. Jesus pronounced all foods clean. All foods clean. You want to eat grubs? Go ahead. I'll abstain on that one. That's liberating, but we have an even better table. It says that we have an altar that they didn't have. And bear in mind that Scripture clearly says the altar isn't anything. It's the sacrifice on the altar that makes the thing special. Jesus is our altar. He's our sacrifice. We don't have an altar here. That is a, 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 a baptism pool with a lid on top so we can use it as a table for communion. It is not an altar. We get confused. We go back into kind of this, this Old Testament way of thinking about got to have an altar in the church. We don't have an altar because Jesus is all the altar we need. He is in himself where the sacrifice was accomplished for our eternal salvation. Jesus is the eternal and unrepeatable sacrifice. And we feed on him, just as he told us. John 6, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives, abides, remains in me, and I in him. This is not speaking of a communion service, but what even those emblems point to. Our receiving to the nourishment of our own hearts and souls, the Lord Jesus himself. Being renewed and refreshed by times of, of, of encounter of, with him, of worshipping him, of receiving his word. We are feeding on him. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. The most basic food. The thing you desperately need more than anything else. If there's nothing else to eat and you can eat some bread, it'll keep you alive. Jesus is the bread of life to us. Then it goes on in Hebrews. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought, brought into the holy place by the, holy, by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. This is speaking of the sin offering. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify, make holy the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. So, let us go out to him, outside the gate, camp rather, bearing his reproach. We're strengthened and equipped by feeding on the Lord Jesus, not to lie down and be like sleeping lions after their lunch, but to get up and go out. Strengthened by the Lord Jesus to go out. Is that what we just read? Therefore, let us go out to him. To go outside the camp. Guess what that means? Beyond church, beyond your own family, Christian household, into the world and, see what it says there? Meet Jesus there. Let's go out to him. Go out to where he is and be with him there. It's a different mindset, isn't it? To, you know, I'm a Christian because I go to church. Well, I'm glad you do, but you're a Christian when you go to work and to the hospital and to the care home, whatever it is. You're a Christian there. And you are, when you go there, I'm going to work. You're going to see what Jesus is doing. 
He's outside the camp and you're going to there to be with him, to meet with him there. The, the, Bible, the apostle puts this in a remarkable way. He says, we go out there to suffer with him, to bear his reproach, to be mistreated for being a Christian, for loving his name. If you want to be liked and admired and received and approved by everybody, please don't try to follow Jesus. If we bear his name, we will bear his reproach. If we compromise with the world for the sake of acceptability, political correctness, to avoid opposition, we will dishonor his name and his word. There is a cost to being a Christian unless you choose to be a Christian who willingly compromises. There is a cost to being a Christian. Jesus said, count the cost before you follow me. Count the cost before you become a disciple. If being a Christian is not costing you something, what kind of Christian are you actually choosing to be? Those who wish wish to share in Christ's glory may have to endure shame and dishonor for him in this age. We're called to go out there to him in the world beyond the safety of church. Jesus was taken outside the walls of Jerusalem to be crucified on Golgotha. We go out there to suffer if necessary with him. On the cross he was mocked and scorned. We bear his reproach in the world. Many of his disciples were taken outside cities and executed in the early decades of the Church of Christ. And killing Christians happens more today even than then. Hebrews 13, 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come. Let me remind you again, this letter was written to believers from a Jewish background. And as persecution against Christians was increasing from the Roman Empire under the depraved despot Nero, it was very tempting to deny Jesus and shelter back under Judaism, which was protected by Roman law. That's the background to this letter. And the letter... The apostle in this letter says, no, Jesus is better. The old covenant is ended. Jerusalem won't do. Yes? That's the message of Hebrews. Jesus is greater. Jerusalem won't do for us either. In Hebrews 12, 22, we read that some weeks ago, we're told we have not come to Mount... Sorry. We haven't come to Sinai. We haven't come to Jerusalem. We've come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Paul in Galatians talks about the heavenly Jerusalem as well. Revelation 22 pictures it. But we haven't come there physically, finally yet. We've come there in the spirit. We've come there in promise. We've yet to actually inherit and inhabit our fabulous city of God together. So here... We do not have a continuing city. We've seen in Hebrews that we are to regard ourselves as being strangers and aliens, pilgrims here. This isn't it. It's temporary. It isn't it. We seek the city which is to come. We may live in this or that city, but for most of us that's Harlem and work, and raise a family, be good citizens, but our real and lasting citizenship is heavenly, eternal, future. And as I mentioned earlier with Pamela's mum, we may leave here and go there at any time. And when we do as Christians, 
We are not gone. We are gone home. We are with the Lord. So Thessalonians, Paul says, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We don't know the truth because our loved ones have gone to be with Christ. And when Jesus returns, they will come with him. They will be, get, they will be get, given resurrection bodies at the same time that we're being raised. Gone home. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Now, people say it's a sacrifice when you don't feel like it. Well, that's kind of true, but just all praise is an offering and a sacrifice to God. You can sacrifice something joyfully. You don't have to sacrifice it mournfully. You don't have to be unhappy about making sacrifice. You can be very cheerful about making sacrifice. Do you understand? Hey! God loves cheerful givers. No. Sacrifice can be joyful. Continual sacrifice of praise. This is picture, picturing Old Testament language for us. Fruit of lips that give thanks for his name. That's quoted twice in the Old Testament. That's a phrase Paul uses here, quoting Isaiah and Hosea, I think it is. Fruit of lips. Think about it. Think about it. For a moment, you're a tree. Okay? Is that really stretching your imagination? Jesus compared us to being branches on a vine. Okay, let's stick with that one. You're a branch on the vine. What strength, what life do you have? Only what the vine supplies. And if you're going to grow grapes, how do you do that? By the life that the vine supplies. And one of the signs of being joined into Jesus and enjoying his life in you is this. These lips bear fruit of thankfulness, of praise, of worship. Fruit grows from a root and thankfulness grows from a thankful heart. And the problem is this, that sometimes we gather on a Sunday morning and think, I don't feel like saying anything, I don't know what to do. Because we haven't enjoyed him. We haven't encountered his grace. Not knowingly, not willingly. And so we find it we find it hard to put words together. But when, you are, when your heart is nourished by grace, finding words is not difficult. It becomes fruit. Trees do not stand there going, grow! Come on, fruit, grow! They just bear. It's a natural overflow of life. And our thankfulness and gratefulness to God should be the natural overflow of our appreciation and enjoyment of his grace. Be thankful. Sorry, I've put that up there in all circumstances. There's many scriptures in the New Testament talk about thankfulness and I'm only trying to skate over these verses today. Do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Sharing. Dipping into your resources. You know? Monetary and otherwise, and giving them. Doing good and sharing. That also is a sacrifice. Sharing, giving, contributing to others. That includes money and possessions. With whom? The household of God, 
others in need as well. That's called alms when we give to the people in need. But Paul also uses sharing to describe the supply of income to those in Christian leadership. I know Femi dealt with this a couple of weeks ago very ably. Galatians 6.6, 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. To share, to contribute together. Paul uses share in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9 and again in 2 Timothy 2 when he argues that those who lead and teach should be supported financially. The leaders teach and support the people. The people support their leaders in material ways. Now let me give you this as a thought. If someone takes the benefit of Christian leadership and teaching and ministry and so on, along with others, but doesn't share in the support, what label would you give that? Let me ask you the question. What label would you want to put upon that? You don't have to answer me now. But it deserves a thought, doesn't it? Faithful giving to God in every way and included in that supporting those who lead you and teach you is indeed a sacrifice. But it needn't be a mournful, grievous sacrifice. God is pleased with such sacrifices. That's where it says, doesn't it? And rewards people who show such obedient faith. Now, having said earlier in the scripture, this chapter, honour, love your leaders. Here's something that we must share with them. Scripture further says this. In fact, Hebrews 12 is a lot about leadership. Hebrews 13, first bit. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Paul says the same thing in Thessalonians. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. This instruction could not be clearer. Submit to those who lead you in the Lord, who oversee you, who teach you. I'm going to say this to you. You can't submit to someone you don't know. It is foolish to submit your life and yourself to a face and a voice on a TV screen or the words on a printed page. You have to submit to and obey real people who are over you in the Lord and are accountable to God for you. Some TV ministry does not keep watch over your soul. And for those who do keep watch over people in a local church, the cross-current of other influences and ministries is often at least unhelpful and sometimes deceitful and dangerous. I've said before now, and I'm giving you some honest stuff again this morning, if someone leaves our church, I only ask they actually let me know rather than just slide out and say nothing, thinking they're saving face or saving my dignity. Please don't do that. Why do I want to have that conversation? I'll tell you. So I know that I'm no longer responsible for you. Simple as that. I'll stop worrying about you. I'll stop being concerned. I'll stop even praying for you because, you, you know, you've taken yourself. That's fine. Everybody's entitled to make that kind of decision. But please, please, say it. I've sometimes had a hard time, because some of, this is, some of this is cultural in some situations, I've had a hard time getting a clear response from somebody. But that's why I'm pushing for such clarity, because I want to know, am I still responsible for you? 
Are you just out there wandering around or have you gone? Yeah? Are you just away or have you left? You think, why does you need to know that? I've just told you why I need to know that. But it's also dangerous for us to think in ourselves that because you've listened to the preacher in your local church, you've automatically benefited. The word that is heard must be mixed with faith and obedience. Some people can even admire preaching and commend the preacher, slap on the back kind of thing, but they don't go out and act upon a word of it. We'll be held accountable for what we have heard and what we've done with what we've heard. I am accountable to the Lord to preach and teach his word without adding to it or taking away from it, making its meaning and application as clear as I can. But those who hear his word are responsible to him for what they do with it, having heard it. Submitting to leadership is to receive their direction and instruction. Being under authority is an essential requirement of those who are going to exercise any authority. If you do not submit to leadership, you cannot exercise leadership. Then it goes on, next bit of Hebrews 13, verse 17. Let them, the leaders, do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Do you get that? You're not doing yourself a favour if you cause your leader a problem. Okay, I'm going to do this quite quickly. Headlines. What causes a pastor or a leader joy? People coming to faith. People coming to faith in Jesus. Being instructed, being baptised, growing in faith and in obedience, being discipled. People receiving and living in the truth. Answered prayers. Prayers of the saints being seen in answered prayer. A positive church cash flow as people give to the Lord obediently and faithfully, proportionately, even going beyond tithing to generosity. What causes the pastor joy? Grace amongst the community. Peace amongst the saints. Unity in the brotherhood, sisterhood. Those things cause a pastor joy. Paul writes in a number of his letters of his joy in the believers he was in communication with and had leadership towards. My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, he writes in Philippians. John writes in his let- one of his letters, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Every Christian leader would identify, true Christian would identify with those statements. There's nothing like it. To see people doing what you've encouraged them to do, taught them to do, and they're out there and they're getting on with it. And maybe they're making some mistakes, but their hearts are, are striving, seeking for God's help to do well, live well, for the glory of God. However, what causes a pastor grief? People saying one thing but doing another. People not obeying the truth. People actually doing what you've tried to dissuade them from doing. You've warned them, warned them even, in my own experience, warned people with tears and they still go and do it. That hurts. People who go away from the faith, they become what C.S. Lewis called worldlings again. They've, they love something else or someone else or both or, or, or anything else rather than love God and serve him. That hurts. Paul had co-workers who forsook him and forsook the Lord to go back into the world. Paul knew that sense of, 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 of loss and hurt 
people who'd been his friends walked away. People who resist their leaders, they fight against their leaders, really they're fighting against God. And what caused the pastor grief? Struggling with church cash flow, month to month. Trying to juggle, make things work. Let me come back to that thing about people resisting and rebelling. You see, some people resist and contend with authority because they've never actually repented of it. They've made a profession of faith, they've been baptized in water, they've confessed to Jesus' Lord, but they haven't learned that the basic attitude of heart, I am my own person, I do what I like, has to die. They've been rebels all their lives, unaccountable to anybody. But if they sit in a local church and still have that attitude of heart, they're not, not going to be profited by what the, the pastors and leaders do and say for them, but they will have an effect upon others too. Under the old covenant, God dealt very harshly with rebellion and dissent within the community of faith. And we're told those things happen as examples for us. Causing your pastors and leaders grief will be unprofitable to you, says the scripture. So the opposite is true. Causing your pastors joy will be profitable to you. It's for your own good. I know a Christian leader in Harlow who tells people that if they want to be other than cheerful and thankful, they need to go somewhere else, not his church. <laughs> he doesn't want their negativity and sourness. No, I can understand that, but I... I'm not telling you who. Take it somewhere else. Paul now asks for the prayers. Now, Paul often asks people for prayer. This is why I see Paul all over these scriptures. Pray for us. We're sure that we have a good conscience. Now, people may have been accusing him of all sorts of false things, right? So he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm pretty sure, best I know, I have a good conscience. Desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do so. To do what? To pray for us. That I may be restored to you the sooner. He asked for prayer a number of times in the letters. If you got the notes, I've given you the scriptures, but I'm going to move on for the sake of time. Leaders have to live among those they lead. Holding on to a good conscience, conducting themselves honorably in all things. The people who follow that leader or leaders need not only to expect to see that in them, but they should help them in their prayers for them. I've uh, adapted something I heard years ago. In politics, we generally get the government we vote for as a majority. You may, not, you've been, you may have been in the minority, but generally the majority get the, what they vote for. In church, we will get the leadership we Thank you. You will get the level, the kind, the clarity, the quality of leadership that we're praying for. You want your pastor and elders and other people to do well, then pray for them. I'm, I'm blessed most Sunday evenings when we gather together, there are at least two people or more in that prayer meeting who pray for me and for Carol. And I'm, I'm often a little, when they do so, catching the throat. I deeply appreciate that. I also know there are others of you who don't come to prayer meetings, but pray like that during the week at home. God bless you. I thank you. Deeply appreciate it. 
Look again at the whole flow of this chapter and see how it sets out our relationship and response to Christian leadership. Honour your leaders who declare God's word. Consider their conduct, verse 7. Verse 8, it's all about Jesus, by the way. Verse 9, don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Don't neglect good and sharing. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Pray for your leaders. And then another verse we've yet to come to. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. There's a thread here, isn't there? Okay, but now it's about you. Every one of us. Paul here puts together a magnificent prayer. It's a classic structure of a prayer. It begins with God, ends with God. There's, a, there's requests in the middle, just like the pattern prayer that Jesus taught us, our Father in heaven, for yours is the kingdom. There's a structure to it, but it has only one request. Let's see if you can spot it as I read it through, then I'll tell you what it is. Now the God of peace, Paul uses that expression numerous times in his letters who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The request is this, what you see still on the screen there. The, the God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him up on the cross for us as the eternal sacrifice, the great shepherd of the sheep, that he may equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in each of us, every one of us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In another scripture, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure, to want to please him. He works in you to want to please him and gives you the equipment and the energy to do it. It's called grace, folks. Grace. Grace equips. Paul does not write in this prayer, I pray that God may equip you to put up with the Sunday preaching week by week. God may not be glorified by our attending a preacher. He's glorified when we obey him. Doing his will. Being pleasing to him. I heard those two words again and again when I was a kid. Maybe it was one of the hymns and choruses we used to sing. Trust and obey. Doing, not just hearing. Brothers and sisters, many of us have been around long enough and heard enough, it's time to be doing. To do his will. And I sense that as Lighthouse, we've come to kind of a tipping point. We either go forward in obedience to his will or not. And we're all making that kind of decision around about now. Please remember that to abstain is to decline. To procrastinate, to put off, is to refuse to act in time. As I was saying last week, when the Lord says today and we in our hearts are saying, maybe tomorrow. That's a no, really. Nothing substitutes for obedience. You can't make trade-offs with God. He never accepts them. This is just fresh to me this week. I just thought of this. What he asks of us, he can expect of us, for his grace is sufficient for us. How do we do it? By his grace. 
So he can say, I want you to do this, and we can say yes, because he will equip us and empower us to do it. It's all of his grace. So he's reasonable when he asks you to do something, because he's going to supply you. He's going to work in you, so you can work it out. What is pleasing in his sight? To do the will of God from an energized and equipped heart. May the Lord bring us all to that obedience of faith through the blood of the eternal covenant and through Jesus Christ for his glory and forever and ever. Amen. Now, like many letters, even some of our letters, could have stopped there, but it doesn't. Paul still kind of carries on a bit. I urge you, brothers, bear with this word of exhortation which I've written to you briefly. Well, you know, Hebrews is shorter than Romans and it's shorter than 1 Corinthians. And if you read it out loud, you can read it out loud in less than an hour. So yeah, sometimes some of us have preached here for nearly an hour. So do you know what? It is brief, really. It's a brief word of exhortation. The whole thing is a brief word of exhortation. But don't just put up with it. Use it. Yeah. Take it to heart. Take it home. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. There's a hint, isn't there? Who's going to travel with Timothy? No, what's interesting is Timothy's probably been in prison. We don't know about that from any other scripture, but maybe Timothy's been in prison. But he's now been released. He's going to hook up with Paul. They're going to travel together. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Paul's been talking to the saints here as a group of people about how they relate to their leaders. A lot of that is built into this chapter, Hebrews 12. So he now says to them, greet all your leaders from me. Yeah. And all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Well, that's a conundrum, isn't it? Could mean a number of things. Maybe Paul is in Italy, writing from Italy. Or wherever Paul is, some Italians are with him. Or even some Italian believers have written to Paul and asked to send their greetings to these Hebrews. Who cares? <laughs> it's just, it's a family greeting. It's like, hey, so-and-so sends their greetings as well. That's fine. It's a real letter written by a real person to real people at a particular time. Yet it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and it is for us time in Scripture. Finally, last verse of Hebrews. Grace be with you all. Notice that word, it's Paul's word. I'm not saying Peter doesn't, doesn't use it, Jude doesn't use it, but Paul repeats this word so often, so many times. And that statement, grace be with you all, you will find precisely, exactly the same in Titus 3. It sums up the gospel in one word. Grace. Grace that chose us before the world was made. Grace that appointed Jesus to be our saviour. Grace in Jesus to humble himself to be servant, son of man and sacrifice. Grace that brought us to hear the good news of God's son. Grace that made us alive towards God, gave us faith. Grace that justified us and forgave us all our sins. Grace, grace that gave us standing and righteousness before God. Grace that has made us heirs of God with Christ Jesus. Grace that gives us peace and hope. Grace that produces gratitude and thankfulness in us towards him. Grace that produces graciousness towards others. Grace that produces generosity of heart and hand. 
Grace that works in us what is pleasing to God. Grace that empowers us to live for his glory. Grace that continually cleanses us, changes us, equips us. Grace, like the old hymn says, that brought us safe this far. And grace that will lead us home. By God's grace, we are saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. I want to ask you this morning, do you know this grace of God through Jesus? Let's pray together, shall we? Think of that phrase Paul uses in at least two, if not three scriptures, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Might be three. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you that it is your grace worked out in your own being, in your own heart, in your own will. You became for us the servant of God, the son of man, the sacrifice on the cross. So you now are our saviour. It's all by your grace, Lord Jesus. And your grace doesn't leave us kind of in some half-finished state, but your grace continues to work in us and through us what is pleasing to you, both in character and in good works, both in graciousness and in generosity and in service to our fellow men. It's all about you, Jesus. To you be all the glory forever. Now take a moment in your own heart, please. And if you do not know what it is to live by the grace of God, in the grace of God, in the continual flow of his goodness, his help and his resources and his strength, then say, Lord Jesus, please, I'm calling to you today. Let today be a new day. Start of a new life for me. Doing that, you need to submit your heart to him. It's no more you're going to do it your way. You're going to learn to do it his way. You're going to walk with him, follow him, be a disciple. Count the cost. All sorts of stuff will change. Some stuff's going to go. Count the cost. And then say from your heart, I want to, I want to know you and follow you, Lord Jesus. Do that right now. There's a transaction to be made this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit because he's here and he's working and if you will open your heart and open your mouth and so quietly and speak to him let me put it this way very simply heaven will answer heaven rejoices over people who turn to God and call on his name thank you Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus.
temporary. It's a new one coming. Let's sing it together. The earth just serves us all. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. But God who called me
my chains are gone. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns Again, my chains are gone. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, love you, Lord, for all your grace, start to finish its grace, beginning to end, grace, 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 thank you, Jesus. Let's go straight into breaking bread together. Emblems again of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus because we have a better altar. We have a greater sacrifice. We don't need to go back to the old covenant stuff. It's done in Jesus. It's all finished. How we